0: So I think it's
1: important at any point in American history to uh, look at Jefferson as kind of a way of looking at ourselves and helping orient uh, where we are as a country and where we should be based on those ideals that Jefferson almost solely authored uh, in 1776.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Smock talking about the wit and wisdom of Thomas Jefferson in an age of epidemics. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor and friend of the show... Jeff Smock, discussing the many different political, social, and cultural commentaries of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was a thinker, a founder, he was a real brain uh, of the the founding era. And he had a lot of strong opinions. He wrote about a lot of different topics, and many of them were controversial. Some of them you'll hear today. Uh, Jeff Smock today will go over some of his more, I think, revealing perspectives on life, things from the French Revolution, domestic rebellions like Shay's Rebellion, and I think most interestingly, his view of the benefits of epidemic disease in colonial America. It's a really interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jeff Smock. Jeff Smock, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Tell us about your background.
1: Sure. I, uh, I'm in my fifth year uh, teaching middle school humanities uh, just outside Seattle, Washington,
0: uh, deep in some distance
1: learning right now. or trying to get that done. Um, I graduated from Pacific Lutheran University with a history degree, and then I got a master's degree in education at the University of Washington. Uh, and I've been writing uh, off and on for the uh, Journal of the American Revolution for about four years now.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh,
1: well, it's it's an unprecedented time we live in, and uh, I think this is pretty much our generation's uh, great struggle, or at least it is so far. Um, and in all the studying and the writing and the reading I've done of the uh, founding generation, uh, I've noticed that when you kind of simplify a lot of the problems and the issues that they dealt with, uh, that they were a lot like the uh, traditional or the uh, common problems and issues that we deal with today, uh, and so over the past month or two uh, in the time I've had inside I've spent some time just kind of going back and and looking up what uh the Jeffersons and the Adams and the Hamiltons and the Washingtons and the Dr. Rushes uh wrote and felt about the uh epidemics and the issues uh with public health that they encountered in their time and and I noticed that there were um, some not only some interesting viewpoints uh but some some common ideas and uh and stuff like that
0: Thomas Jefferson wrote a lot about a lot of different issues. What were some of the common themes amongst his many commentaries?
1: Yeah, to understand Jefferson's view of the world, you kind of have to start from the beginning with him. He he grows up uh, and is raised in some privilege. Uh, he has access, uh, much more access than the average person would back then, to to books, uh, to, to learned opinion at that time, to education. Uh, and he has the leisure uh, to spend a lot of time reading. And this is a time in uh, Western history where uh, it's deep and right in the middle of the Enlightenment. And there are new ideas that are challenging old ways of thinking and old sources of authority. And so he is very much swept up in these new ideas. And he tends to view human uh, human nature and human history and current events and the world that he lives in. Uh, not through the authoritative or traditions necessarily of, of previous generations, uh, but through a more philosophical lens. Um, and he tends to, regardless of what he's looking at or which topics he might be discussing, whether it's human nature, freedom, governmental power, science, whatever it is, he tends to uh, take a treetop view of things. He, he kind of goes to the top of a kind of an intellectual mountain, if you will, and looks down and kind of offers a more uh, abstract, generalized viewpoint of the uh, things that he confronts uh, in his day-to-day life. And it confronts not only the young United States of America, uh, but the the world at large.
0: How did Jefferson react to the violent nature of the French Revolution?
1: Uh, He is... He is in France at the time that the uh, estates general are called by Louis Sixteenth, And he's really there and actively participating in the first uh, initial phases of this revolution. Um, and he is already at this point world famous for what he wrote uh, in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. Um, and so the Marquis de Lafayette, who is in back in France after serving in America, uh, is someone who's a leader of that early phase of the French revolution. And he turns to Jefferson quite a bit. Uh, Jefferson hosts quite a few dinners in his home uh, outside of Paris. And you can see when the declaration of human rights are written and discussed uh, in some ways at his kitchen table, um, you can see his imprints on it. And he's an enthusiastic uh, fan of the French revolution. He kind of sees it as the next step in uh, man's march to Uh, liberty, tranquility, uh, kind of a global harmony. It starts with America and their successful revolution against the British, and he sees the exact same thing happening in France uh, when they write the Constitution of um, 1789, I think, Um, and you see a lot of the similar elements in their plan for government and human rights as you do in America's first Declaration of Independence and then the Articles of Confederation. And he's, uh, he is certain uh, up until the point where he leaves and even point in time where he comes back to, to America to serve as George Washington, secretary of state uh, that there is no stopping uh, because of Liberty in France. They're not going to backtrack uh, and everything he sees or views from afar. When he was back in America, uh, he kind of filters in a way that doesn't allow him to question that, that certainty that, that France uh, is the next step in human freedom. And it takes quite a while for him to eventually admit that uh, what is happening in France through the reign of terror, through all of the coups uh, from the Girondins to the Jacobins uh, and so forth, uh, he doesn't really lose his rosy view of what's happening over there until uh, Napoleon uh, comes to power and rules as more of an absolute monarch akin to the, uh, uh, ancient regime uh, that came before. And only then does he really turn against uh, what's happening in France.
0: Perhaps more domestically. Uh, what did Jefferson say about Shay's rebellion?
1: Yeah, he's not in America at the time. Um, he, after he writes the Declaration of Independence, he almost immediately uh, leaves Continent, the Continental Congress, and goes back to Virginia. And he has a stint as the Governor of Virginia uh, that is uh, controversial, to say the least. Virginia is invaded by a British army. Uh, Jefferson is sent fleeing from his home on Monticello where all the British uh cavalry is riding up the hill to Monticello. He's riding down on the other side. And there are rumors or whispers or insinuations that he's a coward, that he basically uh tucks and runs. Uh and then a few years later his wife dies. And so the late seventeen seventies, early seventeen eighties are not a good time for Jefferson. So he jumps at the chance to sail across the Atlantic and serve as uh the American minister uh to at that time, the court of King Louis Sixteenth, And so he, he views or hears about Shay's Rebellion from thousands of miles across the sea, uh, which isn't a problem for him because uh, as I mentioned earlier, he tends to view things from a, uh, an intellectual or emotional distance. And while everyone else back in America, George Washington, John Adams, Hamilton, even uh, Madison are kind of freaking out about what's happening. They're seeing law, Uh, being completely disregarded by many of the men who had fought as soldiers in Washington's army. And they're seeing the legal authorities in Massachusetts and elsewhere unable to do anything about it. The economy's collapsing. There's no currency. Uh, Each of the states and the national government are deeply in debt, and they are pretty convinced that uh, what they spent seven years of fighting to establish is collapsing underneath them. And then Jefferson, uh, from Paris at the time tells him basically to chill out, um, a little rebellion, as he puts it from time to time uh, is good. It, the blood of tyrants, uh, is needed to, I'm paraphrasing, is needed to, uh, fertilize the tree of liberty. And so in his view, uh, which is not the view held by many others in America, this is a, the elites in America, this is a, this is a good thing. This is, something like this that happens from time to time is going to help keep American uh, liberties intact by preventing uh, the rulers in America from getting too comfortable with wielding uh, governmental power. And it might disabuse them from thinking about encroaching upon the liberties of American citizens. And so he does not see the need uh, for a uh, rapid response uh, in terms of forming a new plan of government in the same way that that especially Madison and Hamilton and Washington do.
0: What types of epidemics did Jefferson see during his lifetime?
1: The two major ones that uh, him and that generation confront are smallpox uh, and then you know, the yellow fever. Uh, during the first few years of the War of Independence, uh, while they're trying to build an army and a government and declare independence and get support from France. There's also a pretty violent uh, smallpox epidemic uh, running through many of the major uh, American cities at that time, and especially through uh, George Washington's uh, Continental Army. And uh, Jefferson is, just like George Washington, a big proponent of this new uh, treatment for this epidemic, uh, vaccination, where you take infected postules from someone who has smallpox, and you cut uh, into, uh, the person and basically put those postules in the, in the bloodstream. And most of the time it turns out that will immunize the person from smallpox. Uh, and then after the war of independence and after the constitution is ratified and the new government kind of takes, uh, comes to power George Washington, the first Congress, uh, that's when the yellow fever epidemic starts kind of uh, periodically popping up through American cities. In 1793, there's the major one in the capital city of Philadelphia and Jefferson is in Philadelphia. as That's happening. Uh, And then there's another major one in 1800, just before uh, in other American cities, just before he's about to take office as America's third president. And um, he, he has some different views uh, on smallpox and their effect. Uh, and versus yellow fever in theirs. Uh, and that's kind of, it kind of goes to the larger uh, contradictions, uh, some would say
0: hypocrisies, uh, that exist with Thomas Jefferson. What did he write about these epidemics?
1: Well, the smallpox, uh, the vaccination, that's one of the major pieces of evidence he points to, to his belief that the Enlightenment and this new age of science and reason uh, are transcending the old uh, human institutions of state and borders and civilizations uh, in conflict with each other. Uh, he basically sees a republic of science kind of growing up, and you have these different groups of people in different countries, whether it's Britain, France, uh, the German states. And they're corresponding with each other, and Jefferson's part of this correspondence, and they're sharing their experiments, their findings, and he points to the discoveries that have to do with vaccination, as I mentioned earlier, as proof that this new age of science and reason is delivering uh, humankind basically into a millennial-type state where the old uh, traditions, the old prejudices Uh, The old superstitions are crumbling before reason and science and light. Uh, And so he's an enthusiastic supporter of vaccination uh, as a way of kind of moving towards a more perfect uh, human, uh, human existence. Uh, And then yellow fever starts coming up right around the time that he's secretary of state and then vice president for John Adams and then president himself. Uh, And he has, some different views on that. He's corresponding with uh, uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who's one of the more famous doctors in America at that time. And kind of as he was with Shay's Rebellion, when everyone was freaking out and thinking, this is the end of the country, we're going to collapse into anarchy, this is terrible. And he was like, no, it's okay, we need these kinds of things to stay healthy. Uh, he has kind of the same viewpoint with yellow fever Everyone else thinks it's this terrible thing. People are dying. Those who can afford to leave the city are leaving the city. Those who can't are kind of stuck in their homes. Um, it's a disease that kills people in a matter of days. It just kind of comes and then you've got it and, you're, and you can be dead within two or three days. Uh, and it's this really horrible experience. And once again, uh, writing from a distance, uh, Jefferson basically says, chill out. Uh, this is actually a good thing because these epidemics like yellow fever uh, will force people uh, to flee from cities permanently. And he views cities, uh, large cities, especially as basically cesspools of corruption. He believes that the more urbanized a society is, the less likely they are to maintain their Liberty uh, because people are clustered together. They don't own their own property. They become, uh, manipulatable by uh, the people who have money, the bankers, the lenders, uh, the merchants, and it becomes more of a uh, more of a machine for tyranny than it does for liberty. And so, if yellow fever sends people away from cities and out into the country and into farms, uh, it's a good thing, and that it'll help ultimately. Uh, Preserve American liberty, even if it, it costs hundreds, if not thousands, of lives in the process,
0: Jefferson believed that epidemics were ultimately a positive thing because they discouraged the growth of cities. Why did he feel this way? Sure, uh,
1: his antagonism towards cities uh, is uh, is reinforced in two ways he he 's in the Piedmont, kind of the tidewater area of Virginia. He grows up on a plantation system, the plantation house. He's someone who likes his privacy, who recoils from uh, being confined in large groups or large settings. Uh, he just personally, uh, his personality is not conducive towards uh, urban settings. And so that part alone uh, helps kind of color his views, his negative views towards cities. And then through his study of a lot of the uh, political science tracts of the time, uh, the histories, uh, he tends to view uh, terms in a more classical sense, a classical Roman sense, where uh, those who had the greatest liberty, and when liberty was the strongest, is when people, uh, men, owned their own tracts of land, their own farms, they controlled their own destiny, they weren't owned or told what to do by anyone, they were independent and that independence led to preserving uh liberty among the populace and then this is only further reinforced uh in his time in Europe when he's serving in the uh, as a diplomat in France and he is urban at, or excuse me Europe at this time is is very uh, uh overpopulated there confined to cities and there he sees basically the same corruption he warns about uh happening in american cities he sees proof of this in europe where everybody is living in slums they're controlled by slum lords they don't own their own land they're not in control of their own lives they're dependent on others to give them food uh and a living and that is why that is the, basically the main reason he sees why uh liberty in europe is so much further behind than it is in the new world in America, and so his one of his lifelong fears, especially as he after he leaves office and moves into retirement at Monticello, is that Americans will move not westward onto uh, the vast open spaces and start their own farms, but eastward into cities, and that they'll become clustered with each other, and then they'll fall prey. To the manipulations and the control of, of money men like Hamilton and his uh, arch headless friends, who control all the levers of wealth, who own most of the property, and have the lower residents in the city basically serving at their beck and call. And so, yellow fever uh, is one of the antidotes he sees to preventing this from happening. It, it basically boils down to the to the traditional Hamilton urban versus Jefferson rural.
0: Uh, dichotomy uh, that that has become so uh, famous. Why do Jefferson's views still matter?
1: Well, uh, there's several reasons. I think Jefferson has always been, uh, before the, the COVID-19 outbreak these days, kind of a microcosm of America, the United States uh, at large. A lot of the ideals, but also the contradictions, the hypocrisies with slavery and race relations and stuff like that. So I think it's important at any point in American history, to uh, look at Jefferson as kind of a way of looking at ourselves and helping orient uh, where we are as a country and where we should be based on those ideals that Jefferson almost solely authored uh, in the 17, uh, in 1776. Uh, but I also think that he matters because he's kind of a uh, he's kind of a prophet for I think a, a post-COVID, uh, a deurbanized America. If you look at the newspapers and you watch the news a lot these days, as a lot of us are, you're seeing a lot of discussions about what America uh, after this epidemic is going to look like. And a lot of that discussion is are cities going to be, are people going to flee cities and go back into the suburbs? And Jefferson, uh, as he's talking about the yellow fever, uh, is also uh, discussing plans with some of his correspondents about what a more healthy, American society might look like. He is a, in his later years, he's a huge proponent of a ward republic system, uh, which are basically, uh, the kind of the prevision of suburban America, what that looks like today, where you have people living, uh, and spread out, they have their own land, uh, and they control their own land and then they get together in these, uh, kind of blocked out townships and, participate in local democracy and make most of their decisions. Uh, And he sees that as the way of not only preserving American liberty, but also preventing uh, further outbreaks of of yellow fever at his time. And I think that has some wisdom and some insight into what we might be discussing as a, as a civilization, as a a country as we move forward and trying to figure out uh, what life is going to look like for us or should look like for us uh, in this, uh, post-COVID world. I, I don't think that, I wouldn't say that Jefferson has necessarily the answers for us, uh, but I do think he has some insights that we would uh, do well to, to take heat up and pay attention to and, and, and add to our
0: national dialogue. Jeff Smock, thank you for joining us.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: The music played in this episode include works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.